TED Audio Collective. Tired of unnecessary payroll errors? Stop them in their tracks. With Paycom, employees do their own payroll. They're able to identify errors and fix them before submission, right in the app. Because no one can afford for payroll to be wrong. Not HR and payroll teams, not leaders, and definitely not employees. Shorted paychecks, timesheet corrections, unentered sick days, missing overtime hours, and expense mistakes are, well, unnecessary for everyone. Manage the process to make payday right with Paycom. Learn more at paycom.com slash soundrise. That's paycom.com slash soundrise. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Public Radio's John Hockenberry about designing his morning news show, The Takeaway, about journalism in the era of Facebook and Twitter, and about the unfriendly way he learned he was about to have his fifth child. And I hear this scream from the living room, Get in here! And I looked at this little pregnancy test thing, and it said pregnant on it in the nastiest font. Here's Debbie Millman. If you listen to public radio... Odds are you know this voice. Good old French President Nicolas Sarkozy. Not terribly popular these days, but quite the entertainer. It's, of course, John Hockenberry, host of the morning show The Takeaway. You might also remember seeing him when he was a reporter for ABC and NBC. And if you've been around for a while, you'll remember his reporting for NPR from the first Gulf War, wheelchair and all. But did you also know that he wrote and appeared in his own off-Broadway play? That in his spare time, he's written a novel and a memoir? That in 2007, he was named a distinguished fellow at the MIT Media Lab? That he has two sets of twins plus a fifth child? John Hockenberry joins me at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City to talk about the twists and turns of his hard-charging career. John, welcome to Design Matters. Hey there. I'm, I'm exhausted listening to that now. Oh, well, my goodness. I, I could not possibly have done all of that. Yes, you did. Yes. And, well, and thank you for reminding me. And you're not even that me. old. <laughs> <laughs> Between you and me, girl. There we go. Um, anyway, thanks. It's great to be here. I think this is a, you know, a, a terrific conversation about issues that mean a lot to me. As you know, I go way back in the design world, even though I'm, I'm just a, a boring old journalist from the design perspective. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been funny because Steelcase is celebrating its 100th 
anniversary next year. And my dad was the first director of design at Steelcase. That I did not know. And I've had some interaction uh, as the company sort of figures out where it's going next and imagining just the beginnings of Steelcase's design world when I was just a you know teenager and my dad, you know, having his struggles with engineering and all that sort of thing. And when Steelcase turned from just designing desks and objects to be really much more of a of a philosopher king in terms of the design world or trying to be. Yeah. As, as as many institutions are, but Steelcase has done pretty well. Well, haven't they bought IDEO? Don't they own IDEO? Oh, yeah. 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 And, and I think, you and know. And that's a real under-the-radar kind of story. You know, you'd have to ask Steelcase about that. My sense is that they don't want to be perceived as just some sort of, you know, behemoth uh, gobbling up stuff. But I think they definitely want to maintain a territory and a, and a beachhead in the design world. I'm an outsider these days, but that's my impression. Well, I want to come back to talking about design in a little while. But the first thing I want to ask you about is a tweet that you tweeted on Wednesday. You wrote, everything I know about radio comes from Norman Corwin after you heard that Corwin had died. You were, of course, referring to Norman Corwin, a man who wrote, produced, and directed scores of award-winning radio dramas for CBS in the 1930s and 40s and came to be known as the Poet Laureate of Radio. He died on October 18th at 101 years old. Why did you tweet that? What, what well, were some of the things that you – know, the most important things you learned? The, you've described Corwin accurately, but in a sense – Unless you know his work, you don't really understand what a huge revolutionary he was. I mean, you know, we think of this discourse of public radio, this kind of talking to one person, even though you're in in a giant sort of radio domain where you could be talking to millions of people. Um, and it's not the commercial realm where it's, hi, Debbie, how you doing? Here we are yeah, talking we're about design. Talk about that oh, in yeah. a little while. You know, where, where you're, you're kind of – you've got this sort of megaphone, <laughs> yeah. psycho personality, which is what commercial radio is all about. Um, the discourse of public radio, that kind of intimacy and storytelling quality that merges with journalism came directly from Corwin. It came from one person, one person who understood radio but was trained as a newspaper guy. The qualities of sort of putting together a radio theater of the mind and leaping from both history to fiction and fact and journalism and essay and editorial, merging all of that together with, with the most whimsical of sound effects and things, it became the basis for Rod Serling's work as well as Edward R. Murrow's work as well as people like Andy Rooney. You know, they're, they're tiny little sort of pieces of the Corwin legend. Uh, one of his uh, broadcasts, and I, I can't remember the name right now, or I'll botch it, at the end of World War II, answered the question, what have we won here right after the victory over Germany? I actually have a quote that I want yeah. to read you. Yeah, it, it is, it is, it is considered from that to be broadcast. Yes. the finest radio broadcast yes. ever. And I don't think anything from then or before can touch it. And I want to ask you about that. So this is what this is what he said. We've beaten this monster, Hitler. The war goes on. But what are the questions? And the questions were, who have we beaten? What did it cost to beat him? Have we learned anything out of this war? And is it going to happen again? And of course, that was at a moment when the Pacific War was still going on. We hadn't dropped the bomb at Hiroshima and Nagasaki yet. 
the idea that someone would step out at a moment like that when America's triumphalism was supreme and it would take that one additional step with the dropping of the atom bomb. Um, and, and at that point, the Cold War had begun. And here is someone with the courage to essentially question a victory on the eve of McCarthyism. He had the absolute courage to, to question that. And, you know, think about what happened after the invasion of Iraq, where the entire media went lock, stock and barrel into the tank with the Bush administration. And it wasn't until not only Abu Ghraib, but it was patently obvious that the mission, the pretext and, of course, the execution. uh, And I I mean, you know, quite literally the execution of the war and the uh, treatment of Iraqi civilians afterwards was monstrous and dishonest in every way. It was only then that the media even began the, the process of, well, what have we done here? Corwin did it at the moment of clear victory and anticipated all of the ambiguities and uh, ambivalent consequences of World War II that we're still living today. A few hours later, you also tweeted, a memorial service for Steve Jobs on the same day Norman Corwin passes, two icons that changed and then defined the way we tell stories. So I have two questions for you about that tweet. First is, how do you think that Steve Jobs changed and then defined the way we tell stories? Pixar. Look at Pixar. I mean, I mean, seriously, Jobs is coming from a different direction. You know, Corwin kind of comes out of the journalistic tradition. Jobs comes out of an engineering sort of liberal artsy geek tradition. I mean, he went to Reed College. This is not MIT, Reed College, okay? And both Corwin and Jobs, and the comparison is fragile, so I won't belabor it, but I think it it is fair to say that Jobs and Corwin didn't particularly care about the categories of technology. They didn't think that a box did one thing and not another. They thought very, very broadly about what it meant to be able to broadcast your voice to millions of people, in the case of Corwin, and to connect people in the way that you could connect them digitally and in the things that you could do with digital media that went way, way beyond the computery, screeny kinds of of things that I think are characteristic of IBM, Microsoft to a certain extent – I mean, I think when Steve Jobs left Apple originally, uh, they were making boxes and they weren't great boxes. And Jobs, aside from being pushed out of the company for one reason or another, wanted to explore way more of the implications of what was possible in this box. And so he created uh, Next and Next created enabling technology for Pixar, for animation. And I think you see with Pixar the development of a Hollywood style of high-tech storytelling. But you also see with the creation of tools like Final Cut and uh, iMovie and GarageBand kinds of things that people are able to create their own stories. Uh, And that, you know, was helped along by the developments of video technology that Steve Jobs didn't have much to do with. But I think he understood as those tools were coming down the pike, this is where he wanted to land, in a place where people have these agnostic notions of technology and they just sort of have a camera and they have a, a microphone and they and they, they become have a journalist they, of and sorts. They, exactly. Yeah. And we are all, you know, archiving, curating and uh, advancing our own stories with, with this media. And Corwin and Jobs are, are sort of two ends of that uh, continuum. That access that people have to reporting, the eye reporting, so to speak, right, right. how do you think that that's changing the way that journalists, professional journalists are reporting? 
Well, I think um, journalists play a character, and it's called the journalist character. Whereas, you know, I reporter sounds great in journalism school seminars about what is the future of media. But I don't think people don't suddenly say, hey, I'm an I reporter. People just, I want that picture. That's really interesting. You got to hear this. Look at what I saw today. These are the much more visceral, basic questions that constitute the reporting at that level. And you're seeing stories told in low resolution, uh, in, in a kind of conversational, hey, check it out style. Texting is a form of headlining, uh, which has none of the conventions of journalism, but every bit of the urgency. So I think it's creating more of a caricature for journalists. Journalists seem more like kind of strange, archaic folks, not in the technology they use, but just in the way they speak. This sort of formalism of journalism, I think, is, is a problem. And journalists have to justify that. They can't just show up and go, now I'm here. We'll get it right. CBS News or, you know, whatever, ABC News or NPR, whatever. It doesn't work that way. People don't necessarily believe that that's the case. And I think the whole discourse of how journalistic stories are told is under sort of profound change. I I don't think it changes anything that journalists do unless they're unwilling to uh, experiment with the style of discourse uh, because they're going to look ridiculous and obsolete if they don't. Now, that doesn't change the thresholds of quality and uh, truth that go along with authoritative journalism. But as we've also seen in this media time, how you acquire authority online, you know, in this sort of broad multi-platform world of media, journalism is one way. Traditional sort of New York Times style, two-source verification and corroboration is one way, but there are other ways. There are other ways to have that authority. And when you get that authority, then you get the audience. When you get the audience, then you have the influence. And then you begin to drive things like political campaigns or corporate brands or, uh, you know, celebrity brands. It's that authority that produces the audience. And uh, then the audience produces this, the influence. And, and I think in and many, then that influence and the audience and influence produces revenue. Yeah, exactly. I mean, either revenue or change. I mean, some people aren't interested in in producing revenue necessarily, but they are interested in getting a viral message out that is important for, you know, breast cancer survivors or is important to uh, uh, the administration or is important to a challenger to the administration, that sort of thing. Well, I also wonder about the viability of being a journalist in the future when there is so much access and so much free content where is the line going to be drawn between the people that are paid to provide better content, more insightful content, more legitimate content, if that is something that can be assured in a day and age where so much is just free? I know many, many journalists that question whether or not their futures are intact, not because of the platforms, but because of their ability to provide livings for their families. Well, I think, um, you know, and I'm under as much pressure on this as anyone and, uh, you know, had had the poor timing of of having five, you know, kids. We're going to get to that At this particular too. <laughs> stage of my life. Uh, but I actually don't think that uh, the criteria for the um, viability of journalism is whether 
individuals who in the in the 1980s and 90s made a great living at it can still do so. Oh, I don't know I about think, great living, John. I'm talking about living, any living. I, I, but I, I, any I mean, the living, New York Times reporters, the New York, the uh, Boston Globe reporters, all I, I mean, severe I, decreases in salary. You can look at the music business, and yeah, they're going true. through the same thing. You can look at uh, you can look at the graphic arts business, and they're going through the same thing. I mean, I, I think the uh, record industry is a pretty interesting case in point because for most of human history, music was an experiential product. Literature was that way until the printing press. I mean, Homer, you know, was like a, a, a concert video uh, wandering around <laughs> right. Greece telling this story <laughs> an over and over yes, again. Exactly. Yes. So I think when – One when, man show. <laughs> exactly. When music became an object that you uh, buy and sell in the form of a record, vinyl record or, or a CD, it, it completely changed history, completely changed history. And I think – All media went through this period of, all right, well, then I I want one of those. I want an object I can sell or a particular brand that I can sell, design a a vertically integrated business model around uh, where the distribution channel is limited because I have a certain amount of power, whether you're a record company or, or a network. It's control of the distribution channel that gives you this objectified notion of journalism comes down this channel and the other channels we don't care about, but we, we sell this channel and we get money and then we pay the journalists, you know, and the publishers, let's be real. That's changing. I mean, I think the distribution channel is changing. The technology goes directly to the distribution channel issue. And if that's going to fall apart, no amount of hand-wringing and bemoaning is, is going to change that. And I think the sooner journalists embrace that the distribution channels are changing and that there's going to have to be some other sort of model, and that's not to say we should work for free, you know, the, the sooner we're going to get to the other side. I mean, you're already seeing stabilization in uh, certain kinds of media where the distribution channel is becoming much more horizontal and it's acquiring a horizontal sort of distribution channel rather than a narrow vertical one that is going to be where the business model lands. But I mean, I, while I think all journalists need to think like publishers a little bit more in this era, I don't confuse my job with the job of Rupert Murdoch. I don't want to. But if I think personally more like a publisher about the content that I produce and less like a minion sort of getting assignments or submitting my stuff to some behemoth called the New York Times or NBC News or or even National Public Radio for that matter, the better I'm going to be. But, you know, we're all in this salary cap era, whether you're working for the NBA or uh, journalists nowadays. And I think uh, journalists make a mistake of, I think, spending a lot of time bemoaning this. Oh, so I do think, designers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's, it's a big, it's a serious issue. Believe yeah. me, my wife and I talk about it all the time. But I think it's wrong to conflate that anxiety with where where uh, uh, journalism is going. Because music's doing fine without the record companies. It's doing just fine. Now, we can complain about how much money we have and, and have a few beers about that. But I, I don't think music is having a problem. And I don't think journalism is going to have a problem either. Tell me about your relationship with Twitter. Why are you tweeting? What do you think about that whole way of communicating? You know, I saw like an original, it wasn't even a beta, it was probably a pre-beta of Twitter uh, when I was up at the Media Lab. You know, I was Media Lab in 2004 and 2005, and, and I saw Facebook in very early inclinations and just got nuts over Facebook and got in all kinds of trouble. I mean, just all kinds of flirty relationship kinds of, oh, let's spend time on Facebook with, you know... I, it just, it no, was I don't know. It I was need a more gigantic details. mess. No, no, there will be no more details. But I, I, <laughs> I, I mean, I w- was very early on in the experience of what Facebook could do and what uh, Twitter could do. 
And what I discovered is that Facebook could be a total addiction, an immersive kind of addiction that would allow you to experience multiple identities and to live in in worlds where where you could pretend to be someone, not that you explicitly weren't, but behave in a way that you would never behave in person. And that was what was fascinating to me about Facebook. It, It turned out to be just not something that a public figure should ever get involved in it. And I think, you know, when, when not that I experience these same kinds of things, but I think the, the trouble that some public figures have gotten into in, in their just outrageous interactions in public space under the delusion that they were somehow having a private conversation, that was an implication of the technology that I saw very early on at the, at the Media Lab and experienced personally. And, you know, it wasn't, it didn't take very long for me to go, you know, this is not a great thing for me. Facebook works, you know, in this particular useful zone for me, but probably nowhere else. And I don't spend a lot of time on Facebook after having that initial experience years and years ago. I think the growth of Facebook, I think, relates to this addictive quality of being in an immersive world. Now, to Twitter, your original question, it's the opposite. It's completely the opposite. It's this kind of uh, sending smoke signals idea. It's not immersive. It's like we're ships on the ocean. And we get to go honk, 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 <laughs> honk, 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 you know, and, and, and I love that quality. And, and there's an interesting journalistic quality in Twitter because it's all headline. In many ways, Twitter says, in, in ways that the New York Times does not say, the New York Times says, here's a complete picture. You've got the New York Times today. This is all you need to know. This is the world. Of course, that's wrong. It's a delusion. Twitter says, pay attention Assemble the data points in this mosaic we call what's happening today and see if the picture resolves for you. So it encourages and invites the tweet receiver to put together a picture of what's going on, which is exactly what editors do, you know, in the broadcast center at CBS, for instance, when all hell is breaking loose and there's a million pictures coming in and you're seeing it on 50 different screens and you have to resolve in an almost instantaneous real time context what's happening. What is happening here? People are doing that with media like Twitter, and and I think that's very, very exciting, and I I, I like it. So you said that you were being tame and timid in relation to other people that might be putting up different, much more lurid things on Facebook. But there is some rather untame, untimid information that you've put online about your sex life, and I want to talk to you about sex. Okay. You're referring to this uh, New York Times project that uh, the video short for the New York Times, where you are referred to as John, comma, fifty, comma, boomer, and this is one of the the quotes of some of what you said. You said, "When you realize that you are no longer in service to Mister Penis, wow, a whole new world opens up." So, talk about why you were um, so willing to talk so openly and revealingly about your sex life. Well, let's just say that um, I don't typically talk about Mr. Penis, uh, except in this particular case, uh, what they were interested in was how my sexuality has changed from the fact that I have a spinal cord injury. You know, I don't have any sensation lower than the mid chest, basically where the nipples are. So, uh, you know, that you have that experience at age 19. You know, and you have absolutely no tactile sense of anything going on below your mid chest that, you know, has a kind of redefining impact on on your sex life, particularly a, a teenager you know, right. who's, who's sort of 
ready to rock and roll at, at any point. You know, 19 in the 70s, you know, let's, you know, go to Planet Sex every night if we could, you know, kind of thing. So as a result, you know, you you retain your sexual identity because much of what happens sexually is in the mind. And because when you say sex is in the mind, you're essentially talking about a, a sort of mind-body relationship, not unlike a, you know, human-machine interface kind of question where the mind creates a projection of, of an external object, in this particular case, a pretty intimate external object, uh, external to the mind, uh, which happens to be, you know, your, you know, tactile sexual equipment, you know, the, your sex organs, whatever it is, male or female. And so when you, when you lose this sense of um, physical, tactile reality, all of a sudden, you know, you're not being driven by a set of nerve impulses out there on the body that need to need to be triggered or pushed Satisfied or, or, or whatever. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a kind of a, a a neuronal narrative to sex that relates specifically to this idea of, you know, being in the service of Mr. Penis. And it's just like certain stuff has to happen. And and when men and women get together in, in sort of traditional ways, the idea is, all right, whatever whatever we're doing here and however much I love you and however much I want to learn more about you or whatever, like, certain things are going to happen here. Right. And that is all dictated by this sense of the tactile qualities of, of the body associated with. Sex. Well, it's interesting because I think we do use human beings do use sex as a way to connect emotionally in the mind. So we're using this sort of bodily expression of trying to be one with each other. Well, I think on a good day. Yeah. I mean, I think in, in, in many ways, uh, you know, it's it, it becomes, you know, let's get the body stuff out of the way and we'll see how the emotion stuff sort of lands. You know, which is which is what creates the awkwardness in the morning or, you know, got to go now or what do right. we say now kind of thing. At, at the end, I, I think the, the extent to which people are disconnected from their bodies and uh, their emotional qualities are in opposition to the physical qualities or, or are a, a vacation from the com- complicated emotional qualities. I mean, that's what this sort of in our era, this commitment phobia thing is about. It's, it's, it's men using sex and and uh, physical intimacy as a kind of escape from the complexities of of uh, emotional connections and even though bodies and minds are predisposed to having this all integrated we unlearn that i think in the course of modern post-industrial american life and and we become this sort of uh, can the body fix the mind can the mind control the body kind of thing and and sex becomes this questionably valuable experience where, you know, you, you have movies that uh, everything will be great until we have sex kind of thing, these sort of trivializations of a much deeper, deeper problem. In my case, and in this New York Times piece, the idea wasn't to just be uh, needlessly candid about my physical situation, but it was to convey an insight that once you were free of that, once you had to find another way to create physical intimacy, both in terms of satisfying somebody else and uh, having something satisfying for yourself, you were forced to rely much more on the emotional qualities, the mental qualities. You had to you had to find different projections. You you couldn't come up with equivalencies. You couldn't just you know go buy some plastic object and pretend that was you know Mr. Penis or something like that. You you had to do something much deeper and much more profound. And that 
you know, goes along with a whole variety of redefinitions that happen when you have an injury like a spinal cord injury. You, you know, you don't walk anymore. So how you get around? You have to redefine that. You redefine a whole lot of things. But in sexual terms, the process of redefinition can be very joyful and liberating. And that's, I think, what I was referring to there. I was happy not to have to service this kind of, you know, five to seven minute uh, arc of, uh, you know, biology in the course of uh, you know, my sexuality. I was freed of that. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't miss it, you know, but it, it was liberating if you could approach it in a way that, you know, allowed you to find a new way. And and I think that's what that's what they were interested in. They certainly weren't interested in, in my uh, my biceps and uh, what I look like in a Speedo, you know, in that piece. Although the it was very is, well shot. It, it was, was very, very well, well shot. shot and it's actually rather short. It's only, I believe, a minute and 49 yeah, seconds. They, and they had a whole bunch of other people talking to. And yet it was incredibly powerful. I came away from that minute 49 thinking quite a lot about what we tell ourselves about intimacy and then also profoundly moved by your saying that after having some additional technological advancements, that after four kids, after 11 years of marriage, for the first time in not only my married life, but in my post-accident sex life, you have an orgasm inside of your wife's body. I mean, that's not something that you forget. And well, no, and, I, and not only do you not forget it, but, um, you know, when I went to my urologist and said, uh, so when we use this stuff, uh, dude, you know, Dr. Rahama, you know, do I need to, like, you know, be thinking about, you know, stuff I haven't thought about since I was 19? And he says, no, John, I'm looking at your chart, and uh, you, I, I think you are a form of birth control, so don't worry about it at all. And so after one particular weekend uh, and uh, four weeks later, um, my wife was experiencing symptoms that were a little unusual and we couldn't figure out what was going on and we we certainly reverted back to like 15 year olds we were going oh my god when was the last time let's look at the calendar oh my god are you late you are late what is uh, own could you is it no wait no that your breasts are a little big i what uh, you know and we're having this conversation could you be no 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 and we have you know four kids running around and i said to my wife you know i think i think you can go down to the drugstore and they have these like tests that you can buy you know, this is how clueless we were. You know, invo- our whole experience was with uh, in vitro. We have two, for sets, our two of twins, sets of twins. Yes. Um, so the idea of natural fertilization was just so completely counterintuitive and so cheap. <laughs> yeah, well, cheap. Yeah, cheap. Yeah, exactly. So we go, she goes down to the drugstore. She comes back, um, and I was out in the kitchen with the other kids, and I hear this scream from the living room. Get in here! Uh, and I go in and. Uh, I looked at this little pregnancy test thing, and it said "pregnant" on it in the nastiest font. I mean, I really? tell you, I just women that that get that, and and they have to see that it's just sort of like "pregnant" <laughs> there. It's one. I, I don't even want you to call that font. It's just sort of like "dummy." You know? Well, you know, it's so interesting because there are two groups of people that are looking at it thinking, exactly. hopefully not, hopefully not, well, hopefully probably, not. Yeah. And then a whole group that are going, please, 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 please. Well, there's probably – the group that's going, please, 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 is probably almost identical even though they're in different age groups. Right. The the people who are going, no, 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 are are very different groups. They're, you've got, the, <laughs> you've got the, the teenager, no, 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 no. You've got the, oh, my God, this is the last thing I need right now, sort of, uh, you know, middle-aged – or heading into middle age, which is what my wife was. And in our case, it was both, 
oh, this is the last thing we need. And and yet it was completely joyful. I, I mean, can it was only imagine. completely miraculous. I mean, this is a total miracle baby kind of thing. And uh, Ajax was born on December 4th, almost exactly two years ago. Why Ajax? What's, what's... If you have two sets of twins and you go in for number five and he's a miracle baby, we're not doing Joe. Okay? <laughs> we're not doing Fred. <laughs> Or Cindy. Yeah, but no. all your children have really unusual and beautiful no, names. No, not Zoe, Olivia, Zachary, Regan. We, we, it had to be bigger. Okay. I, it was, I mean, I'll tell you the names. There was, Tycho was a possibility. Tycho. Tycho Bray, you know, the astronomer. Uh, Tycho was a possibility. Ptolemy was a possibility. Nice. PT, right? uh, Yep, there you go. And um, Allison and I just loved Ajax. I think uh, it, just was, it just was perfect. So you have five children, two sets of twins, and now a two-year-old. When yeah. do you find time to write and work and do everything else that you do now? How is that even possible? Well, I mean, I think that is not so much of an issue. I mean, the fact that I do, the fact that I do a morning radio show where I get up at 2 in the morning, that's the killer. I mean, I, you know, Monday through Friday, I'm up at uh, 2 in the morning. I go what time do you go to bed? I, you know, 8.30. So, um, I, you know, my, my wife and I are barely in a room when I'm not either asleep or she's not asleep, uh, you know, a room alone. And so that that's tough. I, I think the five kids, though, that, I mean, on the weekends, I have plenty of time to, to write. I got a book proposal going right now. I'm working on a bunch of projects outside of, of the family, doing a lot of uh, music, a lot of playing music. And, you know, it's fun playing music with the kids now. We got these like various little impromptu bands. We got sort of a bluegrassy band. We got a rock band with, like, you know, uh, three of the kids and me. Um, we've got a sort of a show tunes thing going with uh, my 10 year old daughter and me on the piano. And, and so that, that's, that's all fun. I, I'm not, there, there's certain logistics about, you know, shuttling people around that can be frustrating with five kids. But, uh, I, I think I'm much more concerned about what the hell am I going to do when they're gone? Oh my God. It's going to be long stretches of the day. How will I fill that time? I mean, you know, we're talking some serious books. I mean, you know. I'll be writing some encyclopedias for about five years. <laughs> well, in 2008, you started The Takeaway. You right. were working on it for the year before. It it really marked your return in many ways to your roots in radio. Yeah. You worked in television for quite a long time. Why why go back to radio? I worked in radio for 12 years, then in television for 12 years. And, uh, you know, I think the radio project sort of presented itself to me. I was at that point putting together a kind of a patchwork quilt of various freelance kinds of things and was pretty satisfied with that. And uh, uh, WNYC and PRI came to me in 2007 and the campaign was starting up and was certainly going to be a very interesting story. Uh, we had no idea how significant the economy was going to be as a, as a daily crisis story. But the, the prospect of doing Live, what uh, NPR and public radio in general has done very effectively as essentially a taped magazine format, a very high fidelity quality. If you're talking about like Radiolab and This American Life, it's extremely high fidelity, high production value, but not live. There's nothing live about it. And I think uh, in general, public radio is not live. And so the prospect of, of inventing a kind of live, theatrical, but yet journalistically valid format for delivering uh, news and information uh, much more nimbly than uh, public radio has traditionally been able to do it was a very interesting design question, a design program. Because you couldn't, you couldn't do Firesign Theater, you know, that, that wasn't going to work. You couldn't do, um, you know, Stern 
shock jock. Right. Even though the qualities of liveness there are what makes that electrifying. I mean, I think that's, you know, if, if you're not totally offended by Howard. And I mean, Howard's personality just gets a little old after a while and, and some people tune out. But but in general, as a platform for ge- for generating information, those sorts of surprising, candid conversations are pretty great. But it's not a model for public radio. It's not going to work. Uh, so you really have to d- start from the beginning. I mean, what, what works? What what you know? And you can't just do like graduate seminar panel discussions. You know, like uh, the, on the News Hour on on PBS. I mean, that's fine for for Jim Lair, but that's not going to work in morning drive time on the radio. Nobody wants to listen to that. Um, so it's got to be engaging. It's got to be very smart. It's got to be very surprising, and it's got to deliver information. People can't feel as though they're hearing some indulgent conversation, but missing what's actually going on in the world. So those are pretty important, intriguing kinds of design questions. And I, you know, it, it takeaway is still a work in progress, but uh, it's been pretty interesting trying to go for that territory. You've been very critical about the state of television. Back in 2008, you wrote in the MIT Technology Review an article called You Don't Understand Our Audience. And you said that what you'd learned about network television in the years since your departure, you have acquired a certain detachment about how an institution so central to American culture could shift so quickly to the margins. And then you further went on and said that television news has lost its most basic journalistic instincts in its search for the audience-driven sweet spot. And then further <laughs> further went on and said, this explains why all anchors seem to sound alike, why reporters in the field all use the identical tone of urgency, no matter whether the story is about the devastating aftermath of an earthquake or somebody's lost kitty. I think, you know, television's business model, as successful as it has been, it creates a kind of uh, uniformity and conformity that is inescapable. And and that's not to say that there aren't incredibly skilled and courageous journalists working in television, and most of them are. I, I think the institutional frame in television journalism is a very difficult frame within which you can have a diversity of discourse. I mean, I think take, for instance, the... Um, Uh, you know, the various networks. Um, You know, NBC, and I worked there for a long time, I think was uh, constrained, not so much anymore, because it's changing at all the networks right now. All three of them have had management, serious management shakeups. I think Fox has had uh, also, uh, and CNN, have also had very difficult, challenging, transformative kinds of shifts going on right now. So, you know, in 2008, and that was a story about really the 2003 to 2006, seven period. Oh, I think it's only um, gotten worse now, actually. No, I actually think it's gotten better. You I actually, do? I, you know, I think, I think um, you know, you may notice on television, you know, examples of things which make you more exasperated. But I think, you know, the traditional news orientation in television is suddenly the innovative form. It's, it's kind of gone full circle. It's been out of favor for so long that you actually see it coming back in places like CBS. NBC is about to launch a new news magazine, which will not resemble Dateline uh, well, at all. And not to say there's anything wrong with Dateline anymore. Dateline has found its you know, place in, in the world, and that is totally fine. And 48 Hours uh, Investigations on CBS has also found its place uh, and serves an audience. 60 Minutes, though, is as strong as ever. The fact that the lead correspondent on 60 Minutes is now the anchor at the CBS Evening News is an important signal that the the news ethos at at least one of the networks is as strong as it's ever been. 
you know, the business model stuff is all up in the air, but I, I actually think that we've come around a corner and there are some interesting possibilities uh, moving forward. There is a sense of of getting back to a news ethos and and using that online. I mean, I think some of the online successes that the networks have had have all been in the news realm, the traditional news realm with, you know, certain exceptions, you know, when Charlie Sheen gets on video or something like that. That's the kind of thing that goes really viral. And and uh, but again, you know, part of the responsibility of uh, the networks would be they television or be they the Huffington Post is to monitor the uh, conversation that's going on in the culture. I mean, I think the big issue that I have is more about the segmenting of camps. So, and I'm, I'm probably talking more about cable news than I am about network. Yeah, news. I think cable news is a whole other thing. Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't think I wouldn't conflate cable news with with news. Cable news is sort of an a metastasized editorial page phenomenon, and, and, and I feel like you can't learn anything anymore when you watch that. When you watch either either side, it because it's just playing to a certain camp that isn't going to change their mind to begin with. You know, I, I frustrate about that myself. And I think, you know, we'll have to see what happens with current TV and Olbermann and Al Gore and uh, Joel Hyatt's experiment online. Uh, and I think the fact that, uh, you know, everything's going to live in the cloud in the next five years and that you'll be able to stream any kind of program that you want that you can create on your own. Um, so the live cable element is is maybe going to diminish a little bit. Um, but I do think that uh, for those of us who grew up in the FCC era, where the idea was that if you had a broadcast license that that granted you a certain kind of authority, as opposed to what the cable news uh, operation is, it's much more a throwback to the Hearst era of the very early 20th century, which is unfamiliar to us. We know about this sort of authoritative objectivity approach to uh, broadcasting. And so television is you know, the way that you experience it at Fox or CNN or, you know, even Rachel Maddow is is just it's just it's off puttingly point of view. Kids, though, now, you know, people in their 20s, 18, 19, 20 now, they they, they expect a certain kind of point of view. And it doesn't even have to be a, a, a factual point of view. Colbert <laughs> is a legitimate lens for viewing newsmakers. Yes. And kids have no issue with that. Absolutely no well, issue with that. Well, they have no issue that he's playing a character. No. And in fact, the character is a useful filter. It is a useful sort of filtering mechanism that Stephen, as a performer, and I know Stephen, he understands very, very well that not only is it useful to have that lens so that you can see how well you know Barack Obama does in front of that lens versus an educational pointy-headed academic like Leon Botstein from uh, uh, Bard does – or how uh, Judy Woodruff does, or how Michelle Obama does, and and if you if you have it all through that same lens, you get a sort of objective sense of where the truth lies. That lens is useful, and it's equivalent to the New York Times lens and to the CBS News lens. It, it, kids don't particularly need the lens to be the best lens. It's just a lens, and I'll evaluate it. On my own. And I think people come to cable news with that idea. And Comedy Central is cable news. Stewart and uh, Colbert are cable news. And Stephen understands that this is a, again, it gets back to the Corman thing. This is a merger of the theatricality of storytelling, the urgency of history, and the truth telling that is what news is supposed to be. You can get all that mixed up in the most toxic of brews 
But when you get it right, it is an effective mode of delivering information. And and I think, you know, we have a certain amount of, you know, prejudices about how it's supposed to work at people our age. But I think um, this emerging generation doesn't. Now, it suggests there are some possible vulnerabilities. The propaganda machine loves people who, you know, don't have a lot of categories, you know, who can be moved from one brand to the next. You know, that's what the media loves. That's what the corporate media loves. But but I also think there's a certain smarts there. You can't you can't watch Colbert on a couch, you know, with like six beers and, <laughs> and expect to get anything out of it. You got to be sophisticated. Well, John, thank you for your insightful views on the world of media, on the world in general, and your and, own... And sex. Yeah, oh, yeah, and in right. sex. Yeah, that's yep. I, I love that we can talk about sex. Um, I love that I can talk about sex with you. You can find out more about John Hockenberry at thetakeaway.org. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference. We can make a difference or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica and research by Jen Simon. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. 